Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Okay, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings 23. It's good to have your Bible with you. Here's a bit of a challenge to you. I, I said this to my congregation in Penketh some weeks ago. I said to them, bring your Bibles to church. It doesn't need to be in paper form. It can be on your phone. The words are all the same. The reason is we're living in times when there is, there is a lot of contention for the words of God. And the first thing the devil did, assuming that the devil is the snake in the text of Genesis, the first thing the devil did was to try and bring doubt on the interpretation of God's word. The devil didn't deny that God had spoken, but he tried to get Adam and Eve to interpret God's word in line with what they saw and what they felt rather than just on the instruction of heaven. So we need to be people who know and understand the Word, who are disciplined in reading and taking it in. And we're going to be looking at uh, the 16th king of Judah this evening, a, a man called Josiah, although when he took the throne he was only eight years of age, so he was very uh, young. And we're going to look at how he dealt with idolatry in uh, his time and his reign as king over Judah. But I want to begin with a story of a man most people have never heard of, but you still reap the benefits from today. And that man is a man called Ignaz Philip Semmelweis. Right, as a survey here, has anyone heard of Ignaz Philip Semmelweis? No? I thought there might just be one or two, actually, but okay, it's going to be a good story for all of you then. So Ignaz Philip Semmelweis was a physician who was Hungarian working in Vienna, Austria, in the mid part of the 19th century, the, the 1840s and 1850s. And he was working in an obstetrics clinic in Vienna, and it was one of two in his location. Now, what he observed in his clinic disturbed him because despite all of the doctors working as they were, despite the fact that, of course, for us it was many years ago, the statistic for them was that one in six ladies were dying in childbirth or soon after childbirth, whereas the clinic down the road, the statistic was about one in 20. So bad was the situation that some women were refusing to go to the clinic and would rather give birth in the streets than at the clinic. So this got Dr. Semmelweis thinking, what is the problem here? This shouldn't be happening. But he couldn't observe anything in the clinic which kind of stuck out to him as being an obvious problem. So he went to a, you know, his study and he thought about it and he thought about it and um, he went around the clinic looking for clues, looking for things that he, he thought he could put his finger on as being the issue. And then he saw something that no one else saw as a problem but he decided to challenge to see if it could make a difference. And it's going to make you gasp a little bit when you hear this, because it's going to sound to you obvious that it's going to be a problem. But back in that day, it wasn't. And this was the issue. Doctors were going from the mortuary after performing autopsies, walking straight over to the maternity wing in the clinic, and they were delivering babies. Why did they do that? They did that because nobody knew about germs, because germs were invisible. 
So all he did was, was something very simple. He said to the other doctors in the clinic, I want you to wash your hands between patients, not just simply from the morgue to the maternity suite, but every time you've gone from one patient to another, you need to make sure that you wash your hands in between. You know what happened? The statistic went from one in six women would die after giving birth to one in 50. Now, you think that this would be applauded by the people within the medical field, but actually, many of the doctors felt that he was... He was a bit, of a, a bit of a weirdo, actually, and they sent him to a, a, an asylum where he finished out his days. It wasn't until about a decade later that a French microbiologist called Louis Pasteur confirmed what Ignaz Semmelweis had concluded. Because they had maybe the equipment, some specialized equipment in some hospitals to see germs, most people didn't know them. they, they were there because they couldn't see them. And so simply identifying something as washing to get rid of the germs help people live. Okay, so how has this got any bearing on the story in Josiah? It is an interesting story, but the connection is this. When we're alerted to something that is a problem, even though we may have never seen it before or we, we, we never understood the, the effects of that thing before, like germs for Dr. Semmelweis, we need to take concrete, determined steps to wash those things away, to get rid of those things. And as we arrive at the narrative of Josiah, the part in his story is he's just been told that God's book of the law, what we call the Old Testament, had been discovered, and they've realized that this idolatry in the land was a real problem, but now they had the word of God to tell them it was a problem, they had to do something about it. He was like that doctor saying, we have to wash our land of the germ or the infection of idolatry in our cities and in our towns. So Josiah, he was indignant with the situation because he was aware now that there was a problem. People were dying. People were dying spiritually because there was an issue in the land. So I'm going to read now these verses from 2 Kings 23, it says, The king Josiah ordered Hilkiah the priest, the priest next in rank and the doorkeepers, to remove from the temple of the Lord all of the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all of the starry hosts. Let me just pause there before I go on. Where is the idolatry? Where has it reached to? It's not just on the high places. It's in the temple of God. The most holy place in Israel, that was where a lot of the idolatry had managed to take a stronghold. And he says, then he went and burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley, and he took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests, those who were appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places and in the towns of Judah and those around Jerusalem, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and he burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. He also tore down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes that were 
in the temple of the Lord, the quarters where the women who did weaving for Asherah too. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and the spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This he did to fulfill the requirements of the law written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did, with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength, in accordance with the, all the laws of Moses. So that's just nine verses there, but in there it's packed with different things that Josiah the king had to deal with. Idolatry in all of its permutations. So much stuff. And so this was this was not just an occasional issue in ancient Israel. This was a massive issue that had permeated every part of society from the outskirts of the villages right through to the holy place of the temple. There was a massive, massive problem. The nation was dying. And Josiah, taking on the mandate from God as king and ruler over that land, he went through to wash and to purge this problem from the land. But the first thing I want to draw our attention to in terms of how we apply this actually comes in the last verse where it says this, Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. Where have we heard that before? We've heard that in the teachings of Jesus in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, where Jesus says the greatest commandment is that we should love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. So when Jesus said those words in his teaching, I believe that the audience that heard Jesus' teaching would have remembered the story of Josiah. Because this is pretty much a direct quote from the 2 Kings 23 passage. And so associated with Josiah was him going through the land, purging all of those things that were idolatrous. So I believe in order for us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we need to be just as diligent and just as determined about dealing with the problems of idolatry in our lives. Now, if I was to go to many of your homes, I don't suppose I would find the kind of symbols of idolatry. I don't suppose, anyway. I would find the symbols of idolatry in your homes that Josiah had to deal with in his context. Maybe there are homes where you would find a giant kind of idolatrous statue or something, or someone's got some Buddha in their back garden with a water fountain attached to it or something. But most of us, we don't conceptualize uh, us having a problem of idolatry because we don't see it in an obvious form. Now, it may have been quoted to you further back in the series, but there's a writer and author called Tim Keller. And he said this, and if you've heard this quote already, please just mind me, bear with me when I say it again. He said, he said many people are, are not understanding idolatry because they're not sacrificing their children on the fires to a god called Molech. But what they are doing is when they pursue career or they pursue money and wealth at the cost of their family, at the relational, at the emotional 
cost of their family, they are still sacrificing their children for a value that says, I want this above the things that God has given me. So what he's saying is that you may never get involved in that kind of ancient form of idolatry, but when we prioritize things in our lives above God and above the things that God has placed in our lives like family, we are being idolatrous. Because we're saying we want that thing more than we want God and the things that God has given us. I prioritize that. That is the highest point of my value system is to pursue that thing. So Tim Keller is saying that most Christians will not come into contact with idolatry in its ancient form or maybe what you would see in some Eastern context today. But he is saying when you are living in a disordered value system within your household, you are doing many of the same things. Now, when I came back to the Lord as an 18, 19-year-old, um, I guess I was a kid back then. When I was 18 or 19, I thought I was a man. But uh, looking back, I was just a child, really. But I'd been wandering from the Lord for a number of years, not doing anything crazy bad, just not walking with the Lord. And um, I remember one of the first things God challenged me with when I came back to the Lord was my music collection. And interestingly, the first set of albums that I felt were a problem were my Bon Jovi albums. Now, who in this room knows Bon Jovi? Right, we had a team meeting on Friday, and I shared this story, and Lucas was like, who's Bon Jovi, mate? <laughs> it's a true story. It's like, really? He's up there. There he is, in all of his late 80s, early 90s glory. I'll get on to why I've called this I love you Bon Jovi much in a moment. And um, I felt I needed to go through my album collection. I think it was a Roxette album. Had to get chucked out as well. I'm showing some really bad taste. Barry Manilow managed to survive. <laughs> Neil, I kept my Neil Diamond records. <laughs> I'm only joking. I've never had a Barry Manilow album or a Neil Diamond album. But I, had to, I felt I had to get rid of my Bon Jovi albums. I don't even, like, Bon Jovi sings Living on a Prayer. I mean, that's almost a Christian hit, isn't it, really? <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, I, just, I felt convicted to get, and I think, looking back, that Bon Jovi wasn't all that. I listen to Bon Jovi now, so if, if I'm out of step with what the Holy Spirit was trying to teach me, I'm sorry, Lord. But I just think my, my, my world and my focus and my attention and the things I was feeding myself with needed to change. It was God just saying to me, look, you know, the stuff that you listen to may not be terrible, but right now I want you to have, I want you to give me your full attention. And I read this story to my kids about these uh, two little rabbits, and uh, it's, a, it's the parent rabbit and it's the child rabbit, and they go through this, this, this story about how much the parent rabbit loves the child rabbit. A few parents are nodding their head, yeah, I've read that one. And the parent rabbit's explaining, like, I love you this much, I love you to the moon and back, and they're stretching their arms out to try and give some sort of uh, 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 reference point to the child about how much the love they have as a parent for, for the child, to try and explain that love has degrees. And when I was throwing out my Bon Jovi collection, I was basically saying, God, I love you Bon Jovi much. That's how much 
I'm prepared to love you now. Because what we lay down is the value of what we ascribe to God. So what you let go of, what you lay down, what you put aside for God is the value that you place on God. The greater it costs you to lay that thing down, the greater the value you're placing on God by doing so. And at times in all of our lives, it's good to ask the Holy Spirit to come in and say, is there anything in me, God, which I need to maybe even not get rid of, but just put aside for a while? Maybe something has become a greater priority in my life than the things, God, you want me to do. Maybe the way I spend my time or my money is not the right way of spending that thing. Maybe I'm, I'm pursuing certain things in career or outside of, you know, some work, some sort of hobby that is, has misaligned me to the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God tells me I should be doing right now. So many of you probably won't be asked to give up your Barry Manilow albums, but God might say to you, hey, you're spending so much time meeting with your friends outside of work that your family isn't getting the attention it deserves right now. You enjoy spending time with them, but if you would park that up for a while, if you would allow that relationship just to, just to tick over and give some more attention to your family or to me, that's how much you can love me. You can love him that much. But it comes at a cost. It comes at a, a price uh, to do that. And most of us, we don't like things coming at a cost. You know, I live in Penketh, and sometimes I have to get to Runcorn. And the quickest way for me to get from Penketh to Runcorn is across the bridge. But I'll tell you what, I think twice before I give Samsung my four pounds for a return trip to Runcorn and back. I don't like paying the cost. I'd rather spend the extra 20 minutes and the fuel to go all the way through Warrington. I'm one of those people that clog up the center of Warrington because I'm too stubborn to pay four quid for my return journey across the bridge. But these things, they come... Things do come at as a cost. And for Josiah in this narrative, actually, we don't get the background of what went on for him, but I think there was a lot of cost involved for him to do what he did. You think of the kind of major measures that he went through to rid the land of idolatry, the backlash that this guy would have had. Think of the livelihoods and the way that the culture had been shaped around idolatry. He's getting rid of um, statues to Baal and to Asherah, temple prostitution and all that stuff. People's livelihoods were based around the idolatry. There would have been an utter commotion throughout the land. People falling out with one another. People wanting to rise up and usurp the authority of the king and maybe try and get somebody else in place. And he was only a kid when he was doing this. Courage on his behalf, yes, but certainly he would have had to learn a lot about how to handle people because there would have been a lot of pushback against what he was trying to do. There was a cost to what he was going to do. So when we get serious about God and we start saying to, to ourselves that we're going to get serious with God and get rid of stuff in our lives that is idolatrous, don't be surprised if there's, not, if there's some pushback for you. There'll be stuff that suddenly kind of just feels more intriguing to you than, than, it, than it perhaps ought to be because it's the enemy coming to whisper in your ear, hey, don't let that go. You want that. You need that thing. Don't get rid of that. That's, that's, you're being over the top there. You're being a fanatic. But God, nevertheless, asks us to do things that will come 
at a cost. Okay, the final point. And I'm going to read uh, another passage in a moment in Colossians chapter 3, which you can turn to if you wish, but I'm going to read it from the message translation. So you may not be able to read along otherwise. We have to not only recognize that there's a cost to all of these things, but it is often a part of our necessary maturity process as well. As I look back in my life, a lot of the things that were holding me back from growing as a Christian were, were, were things that weren't bad, but they, they captured too much of my attention and too much of my heart that my heart was in some ways divided towards those things and away from God. Friendships, as I've mentioned before, not so much the Bon Jovi stuff, but just how I spent my time, just so much TV. I don't know, looking back now, where I found the time to watch about four hours of TV a night. Who has the time? I know kids. I've got kids now, so I never watch TV too much. But back in the day, I watched so much TV in retrospect. But all of these things, they, they take emotional energy. They take attention. You've got to give time to those things. And those things can stop you giving time and attention to the things that will help you grow and mature in the Christian faith. And when Eugene Peterson, in his, his message translation, talks about the problem of idolatry, he talks about clothes that don't fit us anymore, things that in order for us as we grow, we have to kind of lay down and move on from. And that's the kind of metaphor for, for our growth, the, the things in our lives that we just outgrow or we need to outgrow. And what I'm going to invite you to do as I read this through is just to take a moment to ask the Holy Spirit to challenge you on any attitude or value or idea or thought which is holding you back, stopping you from growing, stopping you from maturing. It might not be clearly an idol in your life, but it's something that is stopping you reach your full potential in God because you're giving so much time and attention to that thing. So this is what Paul said to the church in Coloss. He says, so if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, you need to act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Instead, look up. Be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Our old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. And when Christ, your real life, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too, the real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with the obscurity of Christ. That means killing off everything connected to that way of, uh, way of death, sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like whenever you feel like it, and grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings instead of by God. And it's because of this kind of thing that God is about to explode in anger. It wasn't long ago that you were doing all of that stuff and not knowing any better. But you know better now. So make sure it's all gone for good. Your bad temper, irritability, meanness, profanity, 
dirty talk. Don't lie to each other. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes that you stripped off and put on the fire. But now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. There are things that we need to take off because they don't fit us anymore or they've got dirty, and we need to lay those down and never put those things back on again. And I'm going to close in prayer now and just invite you just to take a moment to think through what God might be calling you to lay down and to take off and to never pick up again. Because for all of us, I bet you there will be something. There will be something. And the Holy Spirit, he's really, really kind. He isn't coming into this room with a big stick to bap you over the head with. But he encourages you to lay things down because he knows that by you laying those things down, there's things that he can give you that you can instead pick up. You can take on more peace. You can take on more emotional calm and balance because your attention isn't divided. Your stress levels are reduced because you're not pursuing and running after those things which stress you out. Your health can improve. Your relationships can go further because you're laying down the things that God instructs you to for your benefit. Not because God's a killjoy, but because he knows how your life can look best. And laying down anything that's idolatrous or just ill-fitting clothing, that stuff, if you do it, will improve you because God can put something else in place. Let's pray. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge of what Josiah uh, shows us in this story. We thank you for his example. You took a child eight years of age and you inspired him to do such courageous stuff. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would love you with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our strength, as it says Josiah did. May we be as diligent and as ruthless with getting rid of idolatry in our lives. May we, Heavenly Father, not put up with anything in our life which takes a higher place of priority than you. We just ask, Holy Spirit, that you convict and you challenge us. And I pray that you'll bring to mind right now, Holy Spirit, anything that we are doing or pursuing and going after, which is an idol for our hearts. That we can lay those things down so that we can take up a greater relationship with you. Help us to do this, Lord God, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.